Marlene Chisholm is freaking smart. You are going to have to really listen to this podcast episode because she drops truth bombs like it's a shock and awe campaign. I've been following Marlene for years, and I knew I wanted her to be a guest on this podcast, and she did not disappoint. So dust the cobwebs out of your brain and hold on. Get ready for The Mindful Leader. So happy to have Marlene Chisholm with us today. Marlene works with leaders to build drama-free cultures that drive growth and reduce costly mistakes. She is known for helping managers address that elephant in the room, and she initiates conversations that get results. Marlene is a recognized expert on LinkedIn learning. You may have seen some of her classes, probably taken some of those. She has produced five educational video series on topics that include anger management, working with high-conflict people, and having difficult conversations. She has a degree in communications, a master's in human resources development. She is an advanced practitioner in narrative coaching. I may try to remember to ask you about that, Marlene, narrative coaching. If I forget, you might remind me. Uh, She is the author of five books, including her latest book, From Conflict to Courage, How to Stop Avoiding and Start Leading. And we will talk about that book for sure today. And I met Marlene one time when I saw her speaking about her first book, I think it was, Stop Workplace Drama. Marlene, welcome. I'm so excited to see you today. Thank you, David. I'm excited to be here. I have followed Marlene for years. I met, I can't even remember how long ago it was, but I met you for the first time. I think it was an ATD conference. For people who don't know what ATD is, that was the Association for Talent Development. And you came to Oklahoma City and spoke at an ATD conference, and I was blown away You were so good. And if I remember right, that's the first time I met you. But you are just a delight and wonderful and so powerful and so great. Thank you, David. I remember that. So it must have been around 2011, probably 2011, 2012. It might have been. But man, you were so good. And and your thing is kind of, I don't know if your thing is the right thing to say, but uh, your brand, I guess, is around drama and workplace drama and uh, you're just so great at that. And it's a fascinating topic. And, um, I have just followed you ever since. And I love reading your stuff, reading your books and tell us a little bit about how, how you got into drama. Wow. That's a big question. This, that would take (laughs) up the whole time. Uh, it's really weird because this book was the bridge out of that from conflict to courage. You know, I've tried to like, I haven't, been able to break free for quite a long time. But um, the first book came about after I'd been speaking professionally for seven or eight years, and I got this opportunity. It came from Wiley. I didn't even have a um, proposal with that, but it did come about when I got a contract with Wiley for that first book. So that kind of launched me in a different way. But that came about, if I back it up, there's a lot of different 
places. But when I was getting my master's degree, um, and I went back to school to get the master's degree, because during that journey of figuring out what I wanted to do and reinventing myself, I thought, well, I'm kind of stuck. Now, business isn't happening. And I wasn't a business person. So I thought, well, I don't want to like waste time sitting around. Let me just go get the master's degree. And I was getting business here and there, but not sustainable. And, and my professor said, if you will work on some kind of theme, if you'll work on some topic, your capstone can give you a platform. I didn't even know what that meant, but he said it will give you a platform and you could be like Stephen Covey and you could build your whole body of business around that platform. And so my capstone was drama in the workplace hampers productivity, the effect of relationships on that bottom line. So when I did that research, I started it started spidering out to where it turned into health issues, it turned into relationship problems, it turned into drug use that was, you know, prescription drug use, overdosing, drama, conflict, emotional turmoil affects everything. And so I was so interested in that. The interest from that topic and even that word came from a transformational workshop that I went to where I was introduced to the Cartman Drama Triangle, which Mm -hmm. I use in some of my work now still. Not so much as I did then, but the idea on that triangle is that there's the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer, and we play these different roles. And so the word drama, that's how it was used there. But my definition for drama is any obstacle to your peace or prosperity. And I built my work off of that. Oh, so good. And I mean, and that work, I still remember that triangle and that, that is such good work and you do such good and you're a fascinating speaker. I mean, just, just a really good, I I'm giving the David McLaughlin endorsement right now. Someone, <laughs> needs a, someone needs a speaker call Marlene. Cause she does a fantastic job. So we're, we're going to talk about your new book here in a little bit, but, uh, Tell us a little bit about your background. How, how did you get started? Where'd you come from? Tell oh. us the Marlene Chisholm uh, Lifetime movie story. Oh, the Lifetime movie is that I was working, I was a factory worker, blue collar, was working on the lines, and I worked at Kraft Foods for 21 years. And during that time, I had this awakening that many people have at age 35, 40, 45. We all had this awakening at some point. And I don't care if you're extremely successful in the world's in the world's terms. We all had this awakening to where is this it? Oh my God, this can't be it. Was this is this how I'm going to end life? And I had that. And I thought, you know what? There's not going to be a good fairy. There's not going to be a glass slipper that fits. It's not going to be me finding myself through a husband. It's just. I've got to know what else is out there. So I went through what I call the three life tragedies. The first one being, you know, you want something more, but you don't know what it is. In that tragedy, I started searching. So that was where you start finding purpose. And and so I started going back to school. And that's when I got introduced, when I just put myself out there without even knowing. Like, let me just go back to school. Let me just see what's out there. I don't know what other people do. Let me just discover. So I went through that. Then I started seeing that my gift and talent was always more in thought leadership and in being creative and in uh, teaching and uh, storytelling. And so I thought, well, I want to be a professional speaker. So that's the second tragedy is you know what you want, but you don't believe it's possible. Then I joined Toastmasters and I started to believe that it could be possible. I love Toastmasters. Yeah. Yeah, And I got so much encouragement. And it was funny to me because um, they were saying, oh, you can speak without notes or... And I thought that's a big deal, you know, and um, so anyway, it just gave me the 
encouragement. And I do write a lot about identity now, because what happens when you're going through a life change, you have to shift your identity. You have to leave who you thought you were to become something else. You can't hang on to the idea of, of who I was. That won't work for you. So I started seeing myself as that I could be that. And so then I finally went to that third tragedy where it's, you know what you want, you believe it's possible, but you have to be willing to take some sort of action that's a risk. And so I've even found it a part of my work on the idea that willingness is the fulcrum point of change, that nothing happens unless we're willing. And so I've, I've gone through that myself. So it's the three stages of the three life tragedies end up being discover, develop, and deliver your gifts. So you're in discovery mode, you're in development mode, or you're in delivery mode, or you're in all three in different areas of your life. Marlene. That story is so powerful and you tell it in such an articulate and concise and powerful way. I don't want to gloss over, go back to the girl on the factory line for a minute. Talk about that girl for a second and her beliefs and her, uh, thought process and that metamorphosis a mm, little bit. D it was dig, such, in, dig into that. Oh, wow. That'll take up the whole time. But um, I just had a desire for something more. And, you know, we're, we're either motivated by pain or pleasure, you know, and, and I wasn't motivated by pleasure. All I could see was a big retirement cake coming my way at the age of 65 and me going, what, what was out there? I, and I honestly, that the pain was so intense to think that I would retire. I had so much judgment against that. I've since changed my opinions about that because mm -hmm. there's different levels of success and people are different in what they want. But, you know, at the factory, when someone would retire and they had been there 30 or 40 years, the big news was they're catering from the captain, the colonel, we're getting chicken or we're going to have, you know, some sort of. Chinese chicken or that was like, that was the big news. And right. one day it dawned on me that like, that's what I'm excited about. Like I'm excited about 15 more minutes of not working and having a meal that someone paid for. That's my excitement. Right. Something just hit me. And I'm like, Oh, this is horrible. And then to make peace with it, because I had a divided mind, I would start saying, well, someone has to make cheese. Maybe that's me. <laughs> you know, maybe that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. But I was like dying in that place of searching for purpose and, and uh, trying to find it. And I even tried to find it right where I was because I had just been introduced to motivational and thought leadership type of work. You know, Charles mm -hmm. Givens in real estate, Tony Robbins. I was just learning and my mind was just opening because I'd never been exposed to that. And uh, so I was just searching, 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 and could there be more? Could there be more? And so I tried doing it internally. I thought, okay, well, the next step sometimes is right where you are. So let me try something here. So at Craft, they were trying to get, you know, now we call it engagement, you know, but we were, mm -hmm. they were getting the factory folks to be on the steering committees and to engage mm -hmm. in different things, safety slogans and whatnot. And so I volunteered to teach a safety class. And anybody that's ever done this kind of work knows that there's nothing drier than OSHA safety. Right. Training. But I thought, let me make it fun. I'm going to get macaroni and cheese and gifts and t-shirts to give away. I'm going to do quizzes. We're going to have rhymes. I'm going to make this so fun. 
And so I put all this effort into this safety program. And even people that did not like me said, that's the best safety meeting we've ever had. My God, this was so much fun. And they were really encouraging. What I know my secret hope was at the time, and I know that everybody has this at some point, I wanted to be seen by people that I thought were more important than me, which translates into my supervisors, my bosses, the higher levels, so that I wanted to be discovered. That was that belief in a fairy tale. Like I worked my rear end off for you to say you're worth it. And I didn't want to be the. You wanted to be the next American Idol. I yeah. did. And I thought, you know, yeah. that the, the gold stuff was going to fly down and da-da, you in the audience, you sang and you got this. Like, I believed in that stuff because I grew up watching Cinderella and stuff like that. Right. Well, anyway, what's funny about that now is that I was craving that recognition. And what I got was, OK, you did that. We got them engaged. Like there was like this not seeing which is fine. I'm glad that happened because I was putting my faith in something outside of myself. Yeah. And I thought that other people were smarter than me because of their education or because of their title. And I kept seeking their advice and they knew nothing about what I wanted to do. I would say, I want to do something more. Well, what gives you the right to do that? You don't even have an education. Well, I think I've got the talent. Well, who, who gave you the right to come in here? I mean, I got all that because the structures of knowing in the culture in which I was provided that framework of knowledge, right? I had just broken out of my box, but they were still in theirs. You are leading right into something I want to talk about. And we do this thing called the Music Minute. And I want to get to the Music Minute, but this is too good of a lead in to this. So in your new book, From Conflict to Courage, How to Stop Avoiding and Start Leading, that everybody needs to go out and order, On page 51, you talk about aligned leadership identity. And well, actually on page 50, it starts. Aligned leadership identity. And uh, I'll have you talk about that, but you talk about three realities. One reality is you see yourself as a leader and others agree. Reality two is you see yourself as a leader, but others don't. And then reality three is you do not see yourself as a leader, but others do. And what you were just talking about is maybe maybe you weren't even seeing yourself in the leadership sense, but you saw yourself as something more and others didn't. Right. You were, yeah, you, you were in that category there. Others didn't. But talk about those three things and that aligned leadership. Uh, idea that you're talking about in your book and you don't have to keep talking about your your own story there but but talk about that aligned leadership it's amazing that you connected those dots because i never have i really have never connected those dots but it is very parallel so to be aligned means that there's agreement so if if you're a leader and you've got the identity of leader and others agree that's alignment because it's just easier to, to get the work done because we all agree that you have some authority you have influence um, so that's aligned leadership identity. What's a struggle is when you see yourself as a leader, but but others don't, and you struggle because why aren't they seeing me as a leader? Well, possibly because you're bossy, possibly because you don't know as much as you think, possibly because you can't get along with others. There's some reason you're not confident. And so it's not being recognized, even though within you, you know that you are capable of that. You know, you've got something to offer. Um, and then the other one is, um, Others see me as a leader, like I got promoted, but I'm, I'm not confident. Oh, my God, they're, they're wanting me to lead, but I don't have to have this conversation. Or I need to create accountability here, but I'm not sure I'm going to get backed up. So, 
you know, someone else has faith in me, but I don't have the skills. So what you want to create is aligned leadership identity where I do see myself as a leader and so do my, the people I work with and so do the people above me, they see me as a leader because that's where you have the support. Yeah, and I think that's so important because we talk so much about leadership in the world today and everybody wants to be the leader. And I think there's a whole lot of people in that category of they see themselves as a leader but other people don't see them as a leader and, and they is, go ahead. Well, it may be based on definition too. Sure. So we have to go back to how do we in this organization define leadership? Because you may be a perfect leader for a different organization with the right. skills and behaviors and mannerisms and ideas that you have, but it may not be a fit for this organization based on the hierarchy or the culture, or the structures or how people, you know, it's a family owned business, whatever the issues are. So you have to look at how, what, why do I think I'm a leader? Is it because I get things done? But if I get things done and I'm just a taskmaster and, and the strategy is left out, then someone above me thinks I don't get the bigger picture. Even though I work harder than everybody else, I might think that's what a leader is, but that's not what the organization needs from you. They need you to stop taking glory on your hard work ethic and they need you to guide other people to be in the spotlight. So if you don't understand those concepts, you'll have misalignment and you won't know why. That is so well said, because a lot of times people think that hard work is leadership. is leadership, and that could not be further from the truth. I was having a conversation with a friend a month or two ago, and we, we were talking about this person in their organization, and they were describing them to me about all the hours this person puts in, and, and they're a person in a leadership role and they were talking about just how, you know, they work, you know, hours and hours and hours and how they don't understand why they're not moving to the next level. And I said, why would they move them to the next level? This person is doing the work. This person is doing the work and they can't afford to move them to the next level because why would they move them to the next level when they're doing all the work? And, and so leadership is a lot of different things. But this person is, I, the word is escaping me at the moment, but they're doing the function of the th this role rather than the word you used, the strategic function of a higher level leader. And the higher you go up in the organization, and especially if you want to be promoted to the higher level, you need to be doing less work and more strategic leadership. And getting work done through others and you following right. up and creating accountability. Uh, and that's a hard identity shift to, to make uh, because here's the weird thing. I've seen this happen, like let's say in banks or in or any kind of white collar type of organization, someone was a star performer, star salesman, star insurance person, star banker, whatever, but they did their own thing. Whenever they became a leader, they didn't know how to nurture and promote other people into being the star. And so they are, they don't know how to coach. They don't know how to encourage and they get angry because they can't get that performance when in fact, their job is to coach, to discipline, to course correct. And they don't have the skills to do that because they still see themselves as I'm better than you. And it's hard to leave that behind because if I like that being better than you, how am I going to coach you to be better than me? That's right. really hard to do. Right. Absolutely. Does Marlene have a definition of leadership? Yes, I do. My definition is that if leadership is about anything, it's about alignment 
and alignment is about focusing energy. Mm, I love that. Explain, talk a little bit more about that. The visual that I've been using when, when we first met, Stop Workplace Drama, the same visual I use in this book, there's three components. There's the boat, the island, and the shark. The boat yes, is yes, point A, yes. the island is point B, the shark is in the middle between the boat and the island. So drama is any obstacle to peace or prosperity, that's the shark. Or there could be a distraction. We've got the boat, we've got the island to the left called, that's not fair. We go to that island a lot, or that's not how we did it last year. So if leadership is about anything, it's about understanding the end result and how do I align my actions, my words, the activities, the resources to get to that island. So that's about focus. So if leadership's about anything, it's about alignment and alignment is about focused energy. With that said, you cannot have alignment unless there's clarity first. So in that definition, it packs in the idea that leadership clarity is extremely important because you can't be aligned to something if you're not clear what you're aligning to. So if leadership is about anything, it's about alignment and alignment is about focused energy. And when leaders get triggered into games of verbal ping pong, they've lost their focus. They've lost their leadership. They've lost their alignment because someone else is now guiding the conversation. Hmm. Marlene, you're speaking my language. <laughs> Al alignment is one of my favorite words, especially when we're talking about leadership and organizational work, that alignment is critical. And then in my work of mindfulness, clarity is, particularly in mindful leadership, I think that's a, it's both a goal and a benefit is of mindful leadership is the clarity. And Absolutely. That's mindful leaders are clear leaders. And that's a, a critical component of mindful leadership. What would, about you mindful? Say that, would you say that mindful leaders also know when they've lost their mindfulness because they know internally that they've lost clarity, that if I'm all disturbed about something, I've lost my mindfulness. If I'm disturbed and I haven't resolved it. Yes. And that goes to another component of mindful leaders. Leadership is awareness. You have, you know, situational awareness, organizational awareness, personal awareness. And so you have that awareness that you're losing clarity or clarity's gone. And so you become aware that clarity's lacking. And so that drives you to get back to the clarity, to get back into mindfulness so that you can recover clarity, which also uh, means you have to be very honest with yourself. One of the, one of the things about it's not, I don't want to interview myself, but <laughs> you have to be extremely, uh, the, the thing about clarity is you have to be, um, willing to be clear about what is real, not about what you want. You have, you have to like, be honest about this is what's actually happening, not happening, not what I want to be happening. And I think that's, that's a big thing that happens in organizations as we walk in and, and people are afraid to call things as they are, because a lot of times leaders don't want to hear what things, how things actually are. They want to hear how they want them to be. So uh, yeah. clar clarity is acknowledging how things actually are not how we want them to be. Well, I use it a little bit differently. And I do talk about what you want as part of clarity, but I hear where you're coming from. 
So you want to kind of play with that a little bit? Well, sure. Yeah, you're doing a good job interviewing me. Uh, I, I like what you talked about where, you know, that goes back to the alignment. You know, we want to be clear with the alignment of where we want to go. Right. And I, I, I would agree with that part 100%. One thing I say is knowing your feelings won't change the facts, but knowing the facts can change your feelings. Absolutely. And then yeah. when you change your feelings, you change your results. So I, what I hear you saying is we got to be clear about the facts and we got to tell ourselves the truth about the facts. And right. so one thing that has stuck with me for a long time is that you can only be as honest as your level of self-awareness. So good. Say it's it one right. more time. You can only be as honest as your own level of self-awareness. And so in the book, you know, I talk about appeasing and that's one of the ways we mismanage conflict. There was a group I was working with that was saying, you know, the executives were saying, well, our employees are just, they have this anger. They have this resentment. It seems like we're losing trust. And immediately I said, I've got a question. You want them to be engaged and you want them to be part of the conversation. That's great. But are you appeasing them by telling them things they want to hear versus the reality of what's possible at this point? Because if employees come to you with ideas that are not plausible right now, for whatever reasons, the, the goals of the mission, the goals, the finances, the budget, the willingness of the executives to go that way, you can listen to an idea and say, I love it. Thank you for engaging. It's so good. We'll get back with you next week about that. Then we let it go. You felt good and you felt encouraged. But now why isn't the idea coming to fruition? Because I'm not listened to. Then the employee makes up a story. So if there's a lack of self-awareness on that leader that they want to be liked more than they want to have a difficult conversation of that, here's why that's not going to happen. You know, Peter Drucker talked about that in, in his book called uh, The Concept of the Corporation, that if employees come to you with ideas that are not workable, don't discount their intelligence. It simply means they don't understand the business. They don't understand the executive strategy of what's going on. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're less than you. It's that it's your opportunity to educate them in finance and in marketing and in every element of the business. But what I see leaders doing in their efforts to check off the list of engagement and equality and all these things, we're, we're lying. Oh, it's a great idea. Love it that you came up with that. We're not ever going to use it, but wink, wink, glad you came up with it because you got right. engaged. Right. Yeah. So good. I can already tell we should be doing a uh, four-hour interview with you because it's just so <laughs> good. Okay. So real quick, the music minute. This is, I just love music and talking about it. I also think you can learn a lot about someone by the kind of music they like. It just kind of helps you get to know them as a person. So Marlene. What kind of music do you love? Any favorite oh. artists, bands, albums, songs? Tell us what you like. Oh, I forgot you were going to ask this. Um, I love all kinds of music because I'm a dancer. So I, I know you are. I yeah. love Lindy Hop kind of music, you know, like from the 40s and, and so on. I like um, that kind of music, like Shaboom, you know, that kind of stuff. And I like hip hop. I when, love when you say Shaboom, are you talking about the song Shaboom? Yeah, the song Shaboom. By the like chords? I like. That that's is it the chords or the chordettes? I can't remember. But it's acapella, I, the new version. Have you heard that? It's, oh no, it's I haven't. So but, good. But and the I song Shaboom from the fifties is like one of my all-time favorite songs. Yeah, it's such I a love great it. Song. In fact, my brother had a dog that he named Shaboom. <laughs> that's sweet. That's so, how much we love that song. So I love I love uh, the Clovers. You know, old stuff like that. Yes, uh, yes, love that kind of stuff. Really love bluesy stuff like that. Um, 
I also love like Pitbull, like the station Pitbull. I love the music on the Pitbull station because I love hip hop. Right. Like I don't like rapping with just no music, but I like yeah. Hispanic. I like African beats. Um, I, so I do love hip hop. I love hip hop dancing and freestyle dancing like that. And I love cha-cha and, and salsa. So those are the types yeah. that I wish I had the list in front of me because I forget the names all the time, but like I've got my favorites and uh, I love Sean Paul. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love his background music in in different uh, things he does. Um, I like country too. I mean, I really do appreciate. We just went. We just got back from Silver Dollar City watching the Ozark Mountain Daredevils on their fiftieth. So, like, I like it all. Yeah, I really do. That's fun. Well, I knew you liked dancing, so I knew you'd have some good fun yeah. music. All right, very good. Okay, back to it. So talk about in your book, um, I know you talk about how identity drives behavior. And so, so talk a little bit about that. Tell us about that and why building an identity consciously is important. Yes. If you think about leaders that have a, an identity of, I want to be liked and I want to be seen as the good guy that's going to drive the behavior of avoiding conversations, appeasing, letting things pass, saying things like we're all adults, let's just let this go. And sometimes we do need to let things go for sure, but it's gonna drive a certain kind of behavior no matter what level you are, whether you're a beginning leader, whether you're an executive, and it causes bigger problems at the top for sure. So how, however you see yourself, if you see yourself as I'm a straight shooter, get over it. That's, that's how I am. Then you're not willing to grow because your identity keeps you from being willing to explore a different way of being. Um, same thing with my story, you know, seeing myself as, well, this is what I do. I make cheese. That's an identity that's going to keep you from taking a risk because if you've been brought up to believe that you stay till you get the gold watch and thank God for the 401k, you're not going to see a bigger world than that. You're not going to believe there is a bigger world than that. So it drives the behavior to stay and be a good worker. So anything you believe about yourself and how you view yourself, you'll look for evidence of that in the relationships you have. Yeah. And that's, that's so important because we look for, it's important how we look for the whether we realize we're looking for it, we're looking for confirming we are. evidence. Of well, the those, evidence, looking for evidence that looking for evidence that because I'm a woman, you're not going to let me, you know, you're going to interrupt or looking for the fact that I'm, you know, in my sixties that you don't respect older people. I mean, we're going to look for whatever we believe right. to be true about life and about ourselves. But if you can say, well, that's one version of the truth. It's not that it's not true at all, but there's many versions. And, and I love the saying, there's different levels of truth at different levels of consciousness. So whatever level of consciousness you are, you're going to see those truths. Life is right. hard, true, and true for all of us right. in certain times. Life is wonderful, also true. Right. My manager hates me. The company's against me, or this is a great company. It, it, and it it's how, like, when we start a new job, it's like, oh, this is a great job. This is a great company. And everything looks like roses. And then a little while into it, it's like, oh, this is not a good place. Everything's bad. My manager hates me. And we just find confirming evidence for whatever it is we think. And we have to be careful not to buy into a story and, and have a collective agreement about it. We have to not get trapped in that hypnotic, oh, it's terrible around here. Oh, they're doing that on purpose. Really? And now I'm looking for it. And now I'm angry. And now I've got conflict. And the next time I talk with that person, we get into it. 
because I didn't catch myself in what I agreed with two days ago. So if we're not conscious, mindful, as you would say, if we're not conscious about the agreements we make with other people, even subconsciously, that this is indeed a bad work, or this is the way it is in healthcare, or this is the way it is in a nursing home, if you make agreement with that, you will certainly find it because there's truth in it. But if you also know that there's people that work there that love the residents that want for their good and that they come into this because they're very mission focused, you'll also find that too. So it's about discerning the truth and how you see the world that you're living in. Yeah. And a lot of uh, mindfulness language, they pull from Buddhism and they use the word suffering a lot. And you talk about how your story is the source of your suffering. So I love that phrase. Talk about that. Well, I learned that in narrative coaching. It's it's something I've really meditated on and thought about a lot. Um, so it's the story is your the source of your suffering. And then I've added to that to say, if the story that I tell myself, the narrative, whatever's going on, of I can't do it because I've been working here at a factory for 21 years, or if this is a hard place to work and I already know what they're going to say, it's my story that's the source of my suffering. And if my story, my beliefs, my narrative is the source of my suffering, it can also be the source of my salvation. Mm, so, so good. Yeah, if I want to shift the story and tell a different story, that's why I tell people, don't beat the drum. Like, here's how you felt, vent, get it off your chest, process it with a good friend, a therapist, whoever, process it. But the story that's been resolved no longer needs to be told. So if I'm talking about my divorce that happened 40 years ago, and why right. I can't meet someone, why I can't be happy, why I can never trust the opposite sex again, or the same sex, depending on what your situation is. If that's my story, that's going to create suffering for me, because I'm living from a past rather than from the possibility of a future. So if I want to change the suffering and the story, I have to start playing with a new story. Well, that was then and this is now. Well, just because it happened twice doesn't mean it's going to happen a third time. Or I've learned so much, I'm a different person now. And when you start telling a new story, you've resolved and you stop repeating that same story that keeps you looking for that same evidence. So help us, I, I can picture, when people are talking about, I have a friend who says, uh, I always have to think a minute to get the quote right. Uh, the cleanliness of theory is no match for the messiness of reality. <laughs> That's a good one. So isn't it good? I know. So I always picture when we when we talk about these theoretical things that I love, I always start thinking about real life situations and how it applies. So how walk me through how this works. When someone is listening to you and they say, Marlene, that's great, but I, I hear what you're saying and I like what you're saying, but I have a situation maybe that keeps happening over and over. And so I'm trying not to live in drama or I'm trying to not let the story be the source of my suffering. And I'm trying to change the story but things continue to happen over and over. So where's the difference between me uh, changing the narrative and things just happening over and over? What, what would you say to that person? I would say, I'm going to tell you this, I would coach it differently because you have to let people process through their story and go into search. But 
for you and for our purposes, I would say part of the underlying story right there is that I'm a victim of circumstances versus I have anything to do with these things that are happening. I, you know what I'm saying? I can hear it in the, the language that if things keep happening and the same thing happens to me, it means that I don't identify or recognize when I do the thing before that thing or allow that, whether it's not, like not keeping a boundary or whether it's continuing to trust people who are not trustworthy, not listening to irresponsible language and seeing the red flags. So we have to break it down to find out, let's, let's walk through what just happened. When has this happened again? Were there any warning signs? Was there a giveaway that you're like, I don't know. Was it that you always get excited and then you let yourself down? Is it just that it's not anything worse happening to anybody else other than you? It's just that your excitement level is making you feel like it's dramatic when in fact, it's just part of life. We start to like break apart that story of what other choice do you have next time you see these signs? I don't know if you've ever heard of that that poem called The Whole. I need to just keep it handy because I bring it up so often. Have you ever heard of that poem called The Whole? The idea is oh, I where, where he's walking down the sidewalk and I see a hole or I'm in the hole and I don't know how yes, I got yes. here and I know it's not yes. my fault or something like that. And then it's like, um, okay, I see the hole, but I fall in it anyway. Right. And the next time I'm in the hole, I know it's my fault. The next time I see the hole and I walk around it, the next time I see another hole, it's the same thing. We've got to become mindful enough to realize that we are, we are part of the equation. Life is not just happening to you. In some way, you're participating, whether that's the need to be right about it always happening. I've got some of those stories myself, for right, sure. Right. We all do. But like, why? Why? Or, or is it just like it happens a lot? And here's where I kind of lose my consciousness. And so, OK, that's interesting. We quit judging it. We're like, OK, I keep wanting to be friends with people that are taking advantage. What in me? wants that do i need to be better than other people do i need a story to tell do i need the drama what what in me is seeking mm. that that's that's great i love that very good um talk talk about so that, that kind of leads in i think to conflict capacity what, what is conflict capacity tell us about that well in this book i created a model that i call conflict capacity and the understanding or the way that i've positioned this is that you're only going to be able to handle conflict to the capacity that you can. So if you want to get better at, at handling conflict and not having so much drama, you have to expand your capacity. There's three parts to that. One part of it is your skills base. So a lot of people take programs on LinkedIn learning or online programs or they read a book and how to manage conflict. That's part of the equation, but skills alone will not help you have the capacity. The other part of it is your inner game, which is your awareness your ability to identify patterns, your desire, your, it's your personal responsibility, your whole inner game, your courage, your willingness to feel discomfort. The third part of it is culture. And so when these three circles all overlap and when they expand, you get a bigger in the middle is the conflict capacity. So to make this practical, if you're a leader and you have the inner game and the outer game and they hire you to come in and be a change agent, but the upper escalon they want things the way it is, even though they don't think they do. And so anytime you try to make a change, everybody gangs up on you. That's because the culture is not going to allow you to actually make those changes because you're not being supported. So you can only manage the capacity of, of the culture, your inner game and your outer game. So that, that is such a powerful model. I love that. So you have the three parts, the inner game, which is 
it's your inner game. It's your courage. It's your self-awareness. It's your, and I've, I've categorized it in the book for the sake of brevity, but truly your right. inner game is that spiritual part of you, that journey that wants to grow, that person that's going to face life and face conflict and look inward and, and practice deliberate practice. I'm willing to not just read a book. I'm willing to now go out and actually have that conversation versus saying, I've had that program. I got a certification. Here it is on LinkedIn. I got the certification. Yeah, but have you had the conversation? Because everybody knows the answer in a workshop. So did you go try it and fail? That's your inner game. Right. And the outer game is those workshops, the books, all those types of skills. skills. Yeah. So, so the, the outer game is the skills. The inner game is like the practice. And then the culture is that environment that you're in. Yes, that's correct. That's such a powerful model. And then that all together builds your capacity for conflict. So it is the idea that we're wanting to actually enlarge our capacity for conflict? I think so, because we're living in times now where there is going to be increased conflict. We're going to have increased shootings. We're going to have increased misunderstandings with each other and inability to have difficult conversations. And we're getting to where we can't even stand an opposing point of view because we're so certain that we understand the whole picture. I'm, I'm including myself in that. So we're all getting into that culture right now, which the culture is creating some of that because we've created a culture of rudeness by social media and being locked down for two years and by political division. So I think to expand, it means that I'm going to create more peace in the world. If I can tolerate and not only tolerate, and I don't even say embrace, but face. And this is mostly in my mind, an inner game job when what we're talking about right now. If I can feel feelings that feel terrible and make me want to rush to anger and make me want to call someone a name, but I don't do it and I let it process and then I decide how I'm going to handle it. I still have to handle it, but I've expanded myself because I'm not trying to dissipate that feeling so fast. Um, there's a book called um, The Untethered Soul. I don't know if you've read that, but I think you'd love it. It's a really, it's an old book, but it talks about letting whatever negative feeling, unwanted feeling of whether it's anger, embarrassment, resentment, jealousy, to not act on it, to like let it, like feel it and what it does to your body and to go, oh my God, this makes me want to act. I want to lash out. I want to go tell someone up. I want to go address it or I want to hide and go drink and go gamble because I can't stand it. Whatever your method of defense is, right? We all have them. So rather than doing all those things, you just let it process. You let it soak. You stay with it. You be in it. Whether it's a day or a week, you just deal with it. You don't need a drug to get over it because you feel bad. You just deal with the feeling and then let it dissipate until you can build a plan as to how you want to deal with it. In my mind, that's the biggest part of this because you can always get another job. You can change the culture because you decide to leave. You're not stuck in the job that you have. You can right. always learn skills, but if you have the inner game, you'll be driven to learn those skills. I, I'm very much uh, enamored with the idea of the untethered soul part of that that you talked about because uh, you know sitting with our feelings that's very much a part of mindfulness i mean we teach that all the time that we are to face our emotions and a lot of society a lot of what we do is we do everything possible to avoid our emotions we we will we will walk miles <laughs> uh, metaphorically speaking to avoid our emotions. And 
so in doing that, I, I love this concept of expanding our capacity for conflict, because I think a lot of what we've done is we've done the opposite. We have constricted our capacity for conflict because we've like, well, in in order to maintain my own sanity, I will just uh, restrict the people I associate with, the um, intake of information, which I've done that. Like I, I quit watching the news years ago. Um, You know, I'll do all of these things in order to maintain my own personal peace. And this is a different model. This says I'll I'll do these certain things in order to because I can't the 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 alternative is to become a hermit. The, The alternative is to just keep constricting so much to maintain peace that I just don't interact with anyone anymore. And what you're saying is that's not a viable option. We have to open ourselves up and open our capacity for conflict. And you've given us a model to do that. And we get to know ourselves that way. And and I think it's about the conscious decision. I think there's times when you need to shut yourself off, get your peace, meditate, don't watch anything. Then there's times where consciously you say, you know what, I'm going to watch CNN, then I'm going to go watch Fox, then I'm going to read something from The Guardian. And I'm going to do it consciously knowing that I'm going to get trapped in feelings, but I don't need to, I'm just observing, I'm standing on the bridge watching it, I'm not getting entwined, I'm going, how dare they, let me go look them up, what makes them think we're not going to do any of that, we're just watching, I'm watching my thoughts and feelings and my reactions, I'm going, how interesting that I'm letting that take my peace Right. Yeah. And I can be forgive them for they know not, or maybe forgive me for I know not because I don't understand it fully. So right. what I do to make maintain my peace a lot of times, I have to say, I've really been working on reinterpreting anger to say that when I feel intense anger to say my first interpretation needs to be, I probably don't have all the facts. I probably don't understand it fully. I have a right to be angry. I just probably I don't have all the information yet to go take action. That's what I do, because if you can change your interpretation, I guarantee this 100%. If you change your interpretation, you change your experience. Right. Very good. We're out of time, but I want to ask ask you one last question. Um, Talk about, because what you're talking about goes right into this, is self-regulation. And um, as as I was working on my PhD, uh, I was in my mindfulness study, I was focusing on toxic leadership and then I switched out of that. But in that toxic leadership uh, study, I uh, was looking at how leaders get angry and they're, and why they get angry and all that. And it's a fascinating um, study. And you talk about how anger is not truth. And, and you talk about how leaders use anger as a weapon and you get into self-regulation. So talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I say anger is not truth, but it's the fuel that can get you there. And the reason I say that is because, well, we all have such a relationship with anger. We're ashamed of it. You know, people write to me on 
you know, direct message, I've got an anger problem. And I'll say, it may not be, it may just be an awareness problem. You may not be aware of when you need to set a boundary, when you need to get rest, when you need to eat something, when you need to think something over, you've got programmed patterns that's making you respond out of defense mechanisms. So I say, anger isn't the truth. Just because you're angry doesn't mean you understand the truth of the situation. It means you're sensing something that needs attention and action. You probably need to set a boundary. You probably need to ask for what you want. You may need to go report something. There's some reason why you're feeling it, but don't assume that everything you see is the whole picture. Because if you do that, that's when you get trapped and go off the deep end and, and you scream at someone, call them names, tell them this is what you think. This is what it's what you perceive they think, but you don't know what they think yet. So that's theory. And it's but the reality is when you're triggered, you're working off of your hind brain, which means that you're on survival mm -hmm. mode and you're, you don't have that space yet. So self-regulation is the ability to try to take that space, that breath before you do it. Here's the problem I find with it, though, with myself and with other people, is that if you take that space, the untethered soul kind of space, where you've let it process, you feel the anger, you feel the heat, you feel the desire to get energy out, which you can. You can go for a run, you can go to the gym, you can pound your fist on the couch. Sometimes you lie to yourself and say, okay, I was just tired. I've resolved it. I feel so much better. We speak to each other in the hallway now. We act nice. We reevaluate. Okay, there's no problem. But the truth is there is a problem that still needs to be addressed and you need to clean that up. So the problem with the untethered soul approach is that we fool ourselves into thinking that resolved it when in fact it did not. It only gave you the space of consciousness to actually deal with it. And people are so afraid of that, that they lie to themselves. Oh, it's resolved. I'm over it. No, you're not. You were because that angry. You're not over Because it. the feeling went down. They think it's resolved, but the actual issue was never dealt with. Not at all. Even if the issue was, I want to talk with you for the purpose of when I saw X yesterday, my first response was I was enraged. And I thought this, and now I'm not sure if that's what's going on, but walk me through. Because if you don't address something that made you that angry, it's still there. And you, you question yourself and your own judgment. And by the nature of bringing the elephant into the room, by the nature of bringing forth the observed behavior or even representing yourself and your truth, by the nature of that, what you're going to get 90% of the time is, oh, I didn't mean that at all. And and you know what? It doesn't matter whether they meant it at all or not. What matters is they know you know, because once they know that you know, they won't do it again. Marlene Chisholm, you are one of the smartest people to talk to, <laughs> and I love listening to you talk. I love listening to your thoughts. I love reading your books. Your latest book is From Conflict to Courage, How to Stop Avoiding and Start Leading, and everybody should go buy it and all of the rest of your books. Tell them how to get a hold of you. You can find me on LinkedIn, Marlene Chisholm, and you can follow and get all the stuff I'm doing where you can say you met me here and we can connect. Uh, my website is MarleneChisholm.com. And of course, you can email me at Marlene at MarleneChisholm.com. And Chisholm is C-H-I-S-M. Yes. So uh, be sure to connect with Marlene and get all of her great stuff and call her to have her come speak to your organization and you will not be disappointed, I promise. Marlene, I appreciate our time together. It was way too short, but it has been value packed for sure. I've had fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We will have to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you, Marlene. <laughs> Bye. What a great interview. 
and I know that you enjoyed Marlene Chisholm. She is so smart, and I enjoyed listening to her thoughts every time. One of the ideas Marlene shared with us was her model on expanding conflict capacity. She shared that we can improve our outer game by increasing our skills, tools, and techniques. We can improve our inner game by increasing our self-awareness, emotional integrity, and our willingness to improve. And then we can improve the culture through coaching, support, and leading by example. All of these together expand our conflict capacity. That is the capacity that we have to handle conflict. Let's reflect and meditate on these ideas for the next few moments. If you would, make yourself comfortable wherever you are. As always, if you're driving, please be safe and careful. If you are in your chair, sit comfortably, upright. You lean back and straight. With your head extending upward into the spaciousness, your arms relax, resting on your lap, your legs restful, with your feet grounded on the floor. You're sitting somewhere else, maybe in a yoga position or in your recliner. That's fine. Just get in a comfortable position. The goal is not to get sleepy, but to be comfortable and alert, but rested. If you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't want to close your eyes, maybe a downward gaze with your eyes slightly open. Let's relax by inhaling deeply and exhaling. Inhale and exhale. And one more time, inhale and exhale.
As Marlene said, our world is so full of chaos and conflict. There's very little we can do about the conflict around us, but we can focus on ourselves. And thinking about ourselves, in what ways would you be willing to improve your outer game, as it's called, by increasing your skills? knowledge with tools and techniques for dealing with conflict? What are you willing to learn? What are you willing to develop? How are you willing to grow? In ways to deal with conflict, what are you willing to do? What skills, tools, and techniques are you willing to grow with? Consider that. And then, in what ways are you willing to improve your inner game by increasing your self-awareness? How would you go about increasing your self-awareness and increasing your emotional integrity? and even your willingness to improve. In what ways would you apply 
the skills and tools and techniques that you've learned. Reflect on how to apply those tools and increase your awareness, your emotional integrity, and increase your willingness to do those things. Then in what ways would you be willing to improve your culture? Could be the culture in your organization, the culture in your town, your city, culture in society as a whole. How would you be willing to improve your culture through getting coaching or giving coaching in getting or giving support and then leading by example. How would you be willing to improve your culture? Think of ideas on how to do that.
finally, how will you expand your capacity for conflict without adding to the conflict? How do you become someone who is able to absorb more conflict without being contentious? Let's inhale and exhale. Inhale and exhale. Inhale. And exhale. I want to thank you for joining us on The Mindful Leader. I appreciate our guest, Marlene Chisholm. I am sure that you enjoyed her. Do us a favor and go out and rate and review The Mindful Leader podcast. I hope you'll give us the highest rating that will help others uh, find the podcast and it will encourage them to listen along and hopefully they will learn wonderful things on the podcast. You can also go visit it, go visit pendulumcoaching.com while you are there. You can sign up for our weekly email newsletter and you can also uh, contact us. You can have myself. David McLaughlin, uh, come visit and speak for your organization or your event. I'd be happy to come do that. You can also check out our events page. We have meditations on various mindfulness topics there. And that hopefully that's beneficial for you. Be sure to tell all your friends about the Mindful Leader podcast and how enjoyable it is and all the great things you're learning spread the good news about us. And until next time, we will see you on The Mindful Leader. Mm -hmm.